Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to fall just for what I did. This is the final Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, the Guardian's Ashes Cricket Podcast. And it is New Year's Eve, or it's possibly New Year's Day when you're listening to this. Happy New Year, Jeff. And no one knows the words. Some Scottish thing that someone came and stole from Robbie Burns. Yeah, it, it's one of those things. It's 2017, it's 2018. Where are you in the DeLorean? You're somewhere. It, it might even be a week into January by the time you've got around to this. If so, we forgive you. It's, it's a hard world out there in the podcast listening environment. There's a lot to get through, a lot of material, but uh, we've come to the end of a year, one of the many years that have happened in human history. And as a consequence of that, for the third year running, we're going to run our final word, best and worst of at the end of the show. But it'd be remiss of us not to start with the test match. It's just been completed at the Melbourne Cricket Ground. All told, a pretty disappointing Ashes test match for a range of reasons. Some individual brilliance, which we'll come to as we go through. But we have to talk about the pitch. The Melbourne Cricket Club were disappointed. They essentially said that they are going to hope that the new curator next year who's coming over from the Wacker can make it all better. Good luck with that. We've seen some ball tampering allegations through the court of the week we've seen I think on the whole an occasion which doesn't really befit the fact that the better part of 90,000 Melbournians turn up on day one they get record attendances every year and, I, and I'm not entirely convinced the, the strip in the middle of the MCG does it justice well exactly and it's kind of a shame we're not talking about the Gabba because then we could say we need to talk about Kevin open brackets Mitchell Jr close brackets <laughs> But in this case, a temporary curator was looking after this strip. Uh, Matt Page is on his way over, having recovered from his concussion in Perth when the covers attacked him. But you're dealing with a drop-in, which is kind of a bowl of porridge. And people were talking about it this year as though it was a surprise. But we're both Melbourne locals, and this is our home ground. But I'm trying to remember one in my lifetime when it was a really exciting game in terms of the quality of cricket played, rather than... There have been a few close finishes, but they've often been after some pretty dreary lead-ups. Yeah, it was sort of in spite of itself last year against Pakistan where nearly 200 overs were lost but Pakistan was so ordinary they still managed to lose that game. The year before that it nearly went into day five against the West Indies who could barely add up in Hobart. They were so ordinary. They looked like a schoolboy team. They came to Melbourne. They thought they'd get beaten in, in you know, two and a half days again. They ended up nearly stretching it out to five days such was the complicit nature of the surface. So this is an ongoing problem. They've had drop-in pitches here for over 20 years due to the multi-purpose venue nature of the MCG. It's obviously the, the home of AFL football as well. There was a legal case many years ago now which dictated why they moved away from the hard centre wicket. So there are mitigating factors, but it's not putting man on the moon here. I mean, this is something that has been able to be achieved elsewhere where a a drop-in pitch can break up and deteriorate as the test match goes on. They showed footage of the wicket on day five. It did not have a single crack on the surface. It didn't have any real footmarks to speak of either. All of the preconditions for a wicket to deteriorate weren't there. There must be questions asked as to why that is. Well, there should be questions asked, and there need to be questions asked, but there need to be questions answered. There were a couple of lukewarm statements from Cricket Australia saying they were a bit disappointed that there hadn't been a result and from the MCC basically saying well we're doing our best but nothing in the way of 
what's a solution going to be? You can get good drop-in wickets at Adelaide Oval, so sure. why is it so difficult to get one going in Melbourne that's not low and slow? And particularly, as Steve Smith said, you know, he said it was the flattest wicket he's ever played on now. Yeah. Maybe slightly hyperbolic, but the fact that he's even including it in that group is a bit of an indictment. There were a little bit to pull out of those post-game statements, I thought. First of all, the fact that Cricket Australia did make a statement, I've not seen that before, which suggests to me they were quite angry about the North Sydney Oval pitch for the women's test match. They were quite frustrated about how that played out and the coach said as much Matthew might. I think that Steve Smith going out and making public comments like this, I think it's about to bubble over. I wouldn't be at all surprised if we did see a more broader discussion had and led by Cricket Australia about how curation is operating around the country. This isn't in a vacuum here at Melbourne. We saw Brisbane. That was placid all the way through. Now, on the whole, we don't get wickets having that kind of Australian feel and I, and I think that CA will want to see that because obviously it provides a comparative advantage for Australian bowlers as well because that's the way they're bred. They want them to be quick and bouncy and all the rest and if pitches like this end up becoming the norm in the multi-purpose venues and most of them are these days what will that mean for cricket in this country will it mean that we have to reacclimatize to a future where fast bowlers aren't necessarily supported by bowling here that will change the climate completely yeah, I'm just hearing MGMT now. Ooh, rock me like Australian feel. <laughs> um, but <laughs> while we're here, can we lay to rest a myth about the CEO's pitch, so-called? The idea that uh, the people running cricket and the broadcasters want everything to go to five days. They don't. They lose money on the fifth day. Sure. It, it costs them more money to run the ground for a fifth day than they make in ticket sales. And as for broadcasters, they don't make any extra advertising revenues really selling ads on the fifth day because they sell ads as a package for the match. Mm. If it goes three days, they make the same amount of money. But they do have to pay for all the costs of broadcasting on day five. So that's why you're seeing CEOs and broadcasters pushing for this four-day test idea because it would be a lot more economically efficient for them if you want to put it in those terms. So no one really has a vested interest in getting a boring slow game going into day five. So what can we do about it to make sure that if there is a fifth day finish, it's an absolute corker? Today could have been. If England had bowled out Australia with, say, a lead of 120 in a session to go, it could have been an absolutely blistering final session on a spicy pitch that had a bit of crumble or some balls keeping low that made things a bit hairy for batsmen who were then trying to score at a quick rate. And uh, we lost out on that opportunity. It was from early in the test match as well. We had the situation where Tim Payne was up to the stumps to Mitchell Marsh on the second evening. I'm not trying to say Mitchell Marsh is blowing the speed gun up in his return from injury, but it sort of speaks volumes about where this pitch was at early on as well. On day one, Jimmy Anderson came off the field and said it was no good. Uh, That was the consistent narrative of players from both sides throughout. So again, I, I sort of wouldn't be surprised if we see this becoming something that administrators take pretty seriously going forward because they're not going to want to repeat what happened this week. It's a format of the game which is under threat. It's an outlier seeing 88,000 people at the MCG. It's an outlier having over 250,000 people through the gate. Most test match cricket is not well attended and we don't want to take it for granted. They'll keep showing up at Melbourne. We have to bear in mind the considerations of spectators who want to see a decent day's cricket. Yeah, well, we certainly didn't have a great turnout for day five and so it maybe didn't put too many people off there but there was an optical illusion going around really on day one because David Warner came out and he made it look like it was an absolute belter you know sure. and, and I remember saying on day one Australia's going to make a million runs today he was 83 was he by lunchtime without really even playing any outrageous attacking strokes if he'd gone for it a bit he could have had 100 before lunch on day one of a test match again, again. again. Yes. Uh, yes. as he as he started the year and you know finish it in the same way the bookends but as soon as he was dismissed just after lunch suddenly everything came crashing to a halt the way Warner played on the first morning it was that full face of the bat down the ground he drove beautifully 
And that was different to the way he made the runs against Pakistan at the start of the year, which were largely square of the wicket between backward point and extra cover. He was picking the ball off the back foot, the balls of his feet. To me, it symbolises the fact that Warner has got so many different gears. He's got this ability to come out and make a decision early on how he's going to bat. And he's become the man for all seasons in 2017. That's the one difference between the Warner of old and the Warner of new. He is the Alec Guinness of the Australian cricket team. Kind hearts and coronets, where he plays about 11 different parts. (laughs) And so one day when he's older, if Steve Smith hits him with that lightsaber leave, David Warner will vanish and his clothes will fall into a pile. You've got me covered there. I have to agree. I'm assuming it's a play. A a film. A film. An an early early Ealing Studios film, but then I segued into original Star Wars as well. The full Alec Guinness canon. Okay. I'm sure that our English listeners appreciate the work of the great man on screen and on stage. Not that I ever saw him on stage. (laughs) I did uh, I did see Gandalf on stage, though. Um, I did see Sir Ian McKellen in King Lear when, when he got the kid off. And <laughs> we'll, cut, we'll cut all of that out. Yeah, yeah, we'll cut all of that out, he says. Uh, that's all obviously going to be in the podcast, and you're hearing us talking about it, cutting it out. Yeah, that, I mean, that's yeah, like... Behind the fourth wall here. Back in frontline days when they'd say, oh, we'll just take a couple of funny shots to finish off the roll. But I'll oh, just put that pot plan on your head. <laughs> yeah. Drop your pants. Oh, we'll just do some funny ones just to finish off just the roll. Just for the Christmas blooper reel. Front of the paper the next day, of guaranteed. Course. So they kind of stodged their way through that first day. There were, what, 40-odd runs in the second session? 43 and runs, and it was. And I have to say, I really respected the England bowling attack for the way they bounced back there, because you might recall, David Warner is out on 99. Tom Curran earns a, a wild slash across the line, out of character for Warner in the context. Uh, the ball ended up at mid-on, and he was caught. And he was walking off the ground. That roar from the Barmy Army was as loud as we've heard them in the entire summer. And then when it became apparent that he'd overstepped, the roar from the Melbourne crowd was 10 times as loud. I don't think I've heard anything quite like that at the MCG for a game of cricket, certainly since Shane Warne's 700th wicket. I reckon Brendan McCullum being bowled in the World Cup final, third ball by yeah. Mitchell Stark, it was that level of just triumph at seeing the foot come down over the line on the big screen. Yeah, I'll pay that. Warner reprieve, gets the single next ball, goes to the 100, does the Toyota celebration and whatnot, which seemed, you know, maybe a little bit forced in the circumstances. <laughs> but he was dismissed shortly thereafter, so obviously his concentration had been broken, Samuel L. Jackson style. Yeah, I think that's the, the, the fact that England were willing to bowl a very disciplined outside off stump line. Stuart Broad was being booed for drying it up and bowling two feet outside the off stump. Maybe some of those balls could have been assessed as a sundry as a wide, but they weren't. And I think that's what originally got Warner thinking about how he was going to crawl on his way up to 100. So credit goes to England for drying them up. And that continued into the final session as well. Smith was joined by Sean Marsh, and they did a good job to get through to the close, but the scoring rate was not rapid at all. It wasn't the sort of day you'd expect on day one in Australia. That was probably the first signal that we had the sort of pitch on our hands. It wasn't going to generate huge amounts of runs in a hurry. And can I just say, every time someone uses the word sundries in relation to cricket, I just imagine like a bag of pineapple fritters and say, crab <laughs> sticks and, you know, at Fish and Chip Shop, they used to have the, uh, of the course, things listed yeah. under the sundries. Good times. Sausage in batter. Did they get a run in that? They had their own magical category. That's deep, where deep fried Mars bars. They were over there as well, I'm sure. The dim sims were involved. Yeah, everybody was involved. So coming out on data, you've got Steve Smith not out overnight, cruises into the 70s, and it's just immoral that there's another Steve Smith 100 coming. I was already writing the piece yeah. <laughs> about, oh, 23rd Test 100. It just seemed imminent. And then without really any warning, I guess he was playing a cut shot to a Perth delivery, but it was on a Melbourne pitch. Got up on his toes, got a bit too high for it, bottom edge into the stumps, and things started to slide. I went and sought out Chris Rogers after that uh, series of dismissals where Smith, their Mitchell, Marsh and Tim Payne, all looking in fantastic nick, they all chopped on. And he made the point to me that, well, certainly in the case of Smith and Marsh, they were trying to cut balls that you just can't do at the MCG. Due to how slow it is, you need to wait for the ball to come to you and punch off the back foot. But they were wanging the bat uh, outside the off stump in a fashion that you could get away with in Perth. So Mitchell Marsh was 
carving three-point off the back foot in Perth. Those three batsmen went in quick succession. That was the narrative of the morning. And all told, Australia lost seven for 67. That was a hell of a collapse. Smith talked a lot about the ability for this side to collapse when he was in Bangladesh three or four months ago. And this is the first sort of major collapse we've seen in this series. Yeah, and suddenly the tail looked a lot longer with Jackson Bird coming in at number nine. Now, he's never batted anywhere but 11 in his test career. And, you know, of course, had that humorous Rod Marsh episode about a year ago where the then chairman of selectors said that Jackson Bird hadn't been picked because uh, his batting was not as good as Joe Many's, which not many number 11s have been excluded based on their batting. Yeah, and it didn't work. Jackson Bird at number nine. It was a very quick end for Australia, as we mentioned, the seven for 67 collapse. Stuart Broad, apparently he was finished. He took four for 51. Jimmy Anderson, he was on the next plane home as well, apparently. Three for 61. They did a fantastic job, the old-timers. There's a reason why those two guys have in excess of 900 test wickets or whatever it is. They showed their class there, but it's been a constant theme of this series that either one of England's openers falls early, and Mark Stoneman was the guy to fall this time. Caught and bowled Nathan Lyon. That's the third time he's taken a catch in his follow-through during the series, Jeff, and it says to me that Lyon is increasingly a bowler of confidence, not just what he does with the ball, but these other parts of his game. Even speaking to the media, he's a different sort of player in so many ways to the one that was here 12 months ago. Although I do always remember that he took a great court and bowled in his first ever test innings when he took 5 for 34 against uh, Sri Lanka. That was was the fifth wicket. I remember well because I was jumping up and down in my hotel bed at the time. But still, uh, it feels as though the sort of nonchalant way he plucked that ball out of the air, threw it in the air, it was always destined to happen that way. It it just wasn't in doubt. It brought to mind over Christmas watching my dad go up the stepladder to get a a jar of preserved peaches out of the really high cupboard. (laughs) Just a sort of lean up and a casual pluck and then he came down with the golden reward. So Mark Stoneman was gone for 15. Vince LBW Hazelwood, despite inside edging it onto his pad. So this completely disproves years and years of batsmen saying you always know when you've nicked it because he didn't. Yeah, a lot of theories about the the fat edges on bats and whether that means they can't feel it anymore. I'm not sure what the go is there, but he certainly didn't think he hit it. He walked off without even considering reviewing it. A lot of England supporters were very disappointed at that mode of dismissal. Joe Root, Jeff. Joe Root was batting through to the close with Alistair Cook, who just, what a brilliant partnership those two put together towards the close. Because remember, they came together when it was 80 for two. And at that stage, Australia's first innings total of 327 looks pretty good. But let's deal with Joe Root first. He looks like he's at such comfort at the crease leading to 50. It's what he does afterwards that's the problem. Well, exactly. And he's put together three breezy, confident, sparkling half centuries, Mm. you might say, in this series. And then every time that's happened, he's got out pretty soon afterwards. And a couple of times it's been relatively early the next morning as well. So he's Mm. had overnight time to think about it. He was 49, not out at stumps on day two, and then came back, got to 61, and was very promptly gone. Yeah, that conversion rate just gets worse and worse. The gap between 50s and 100s for Root, I think at one stage it might have been, they might have narrowed it to about six or seven about a year ago. Now it's it's massive. He's made 1300s, I think it's 35 half centuries. Nothing wrong with the amount of time he gets to 50. It's what he does afterwards. And as he's always saying himself at media conferences, it's the big hundreds that go on and win test matches. And he failed to do that on this occasion. Who did though, just when we led towards stumps on day two, what a brilliant bit of theatre. Steve Smith brings himself on Jeff and Alistair Cook finds a way of punching him behind square, bringing up the 100. What a response. What a brilliant bit of theatre. Um, it reminded me of Steve Waugh on the last ball. Perhaps not quite as much riding on it as there was that day for the Australian captain, but I mean, we, we don't get these moments all the time. It's one I certainly will savour. I really liked the fact that it came up off Steve Smith because it was kind of, he is a bit of an erratic, trashy bowler and it was ending a day, that second day, I know we have different views on this, but I think, you know, Alistair Cook really struggled at times on that second day. He's had a horrible series leading to the 
this point. He sort of looked completely shot in Perth. He looked like he'd forgotten how to play cricket. And there were a lot of points during the day where I thought he looked hesitant or he'd, he'd get a boundary, but they were never quite right out of the middle of the bat. The bat was twisting in his hands. Things were going wrong, but he was just able to keep putting that aside and say, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Keep going. He was dropped on at slip on 66 and, yeah. and just put it aside and kept going. No matter how difficult it was or how many times he didn't quite time the ball, he just guts it out, gets himself towards stumps. He's on 93 at the time and he manages to get a couple of boundaries from a couple of absolutely rank Steve Smith balls and get home to 100. And it was kind of triumph of ugly cricket that culminated in a beautiful moment. I know Cook's not known for his driving. I think that might have been partly why I rated it so highly. He's viewed for the cut, the pull and the tuck. Not so much his drive. I saw him bat at Old Trafford last year with Joe Root and make a century on day one against Pakistan. And and that was a similar innings where he was able to hit the rope down at long on, long off repeatedly. And that was much the case this, this, this time around as well, making his way to his 32nd Test 100, which also brought him level with Steve Warren. I like that symmetry as well. Came back the next day, job still to do. He would have seen, watching from the change rooms, how often England had collapsed after someone who'd gone on to make a decent score had got out. He couldn't afford that luxury today. It was all about Alistair Cook and he, and he delivered in spades. Yeah, he did. And he didn't get a whole lot of support. You sort of run down the rest of the scorecard. Milan made 14, Besto 22, Moen Ali and absolutely panicked 20. Uh, and it was really only as things got later in the order, you know, Chris Wokes made 26 off 62 balls and really dug in and stuck mm. around for a while. But then it was when it got down to that partnership with Stuart Broad, the, the game was still very much on the line at that point. Cook was on about 150 at the time from memory. And they were only a, about 40 runs in front when Stuart Broad came to the crease. Now, yeah, they were 20 in front. And then Cook gets dropped on 153 when they're just having broken even when Chris Wokes was still there. Stuart Broad, who has been the most maligned of the English lower order for the way play the short ball in particular but that wasn't happening out there you take Mitchell Stark's potency out of the attack you replace him with Jackson Bird and it was a different story and Broad after getting hit initially I should add got hit on the shoulder he managed to maintain his composure and in his relatively unorthodox style whack his way to a very unexpected half century. Yeah, well, I wrote about this on the day because it, it seems such a compelling story. He's had an absolutely horrific series with the bat. He's got good reason to be scared of the short ball. He's quite well known. He was hit in the face in 2014 mm. by a very quick bowler in Varun Aaron from India. Uh, the ball squeezed through his grill, clocked him right between the eyes. He had nightmares about it. And he hasn't recovered to the point that he's now confident facing the short ball. So he does back away from it. He does try to get away from it. The Australians know it and they target him. And I guess you can say that that's fair in international sport. The thing about Broad is he has the courage to keep putting himself out there, even though he's thoroughly not comfortable in dealing with it. So he hit in the chest early, which rebounded up and, and whacked him in the head. They kept going after him with the short ball. And he had a couple of wild swipes, and then Cook came down and, and had a conversation with him. And I thought Cook handled the thing masterfully, really. He kept taking singles from the first ball of overs and giving Broad the strike against the fast bowlers and you might say that's a stupid move but I think what it was actually doing was saying to Stuart Broad I'm trusting you you need to be responsible Mm. and Stuart Broad responded he started playing back foot defensive shots he started making sure he got through overs and he started finding singles rather than just trying to whack them over the fence yeah he ended up finishing with 56 from 63 balls with eight boundaries and one six and yeah it did lay a stand of 100 on the Australians they would have thought "We'll, we'll, we'll polish England off we'll be batting again well and truly into the final session we'll probably have a comfortable lead by stumps by contrast, England were well ahead by the close. Cook had made his way to a double hundred, 244. What a lovely way to bring up the 200 as well. Another straight drive that we mentioned before. A very modest celebration. That said a little bit too. For mine, it was just a case of, I am the elder statesman. I'm the professional in this side. This is my job. I've finally done it now. And relief. And I'd challenge anyone to find a demonstrative celebration of, of any Ellis to Cook 100. He's not really well. the, the, <laughs> he's not 
got the thumping chest and roaring kind of hashtag beat England sort of character. But he made the highest ever score by a visiting batsman at the MCG. He made the fifth highest score by any visiting batsman in Australia. So it was a prodigious innings batted across nearly two full days. Jimmy Anderson got him through to the close. Didn't get him any further than that when they came back the next day and Anderson was out first ball of the day. My favourite bit of the start of day four was when the MCC uh, went along and pulled the Viv Richards sign down. So Viv Richards had the previous highest score for a foreign batsman at the MCG, 208 from, I think it was 84-85. And they went along and they, they, they literally like pulled it down and prepared themselves a temporary Cook 244 sign. I thought that was just a, a lovely touch and it, it, you know, it gives you a sense of the history of this ground as well, the first ground where they ever played Test Cricket and it was a special moment. And I hope it is temporary because the weighting of the font is not consistent <laughs> because you've got... You've but got it is. You saw what they said today, didn't you? They said, they said that it was a temporary measure because yep. they know they need to get the guy to paint the thing properly. Hey, it meant we had to go down and have a look at it, didn't we? Yeah, and if you haven't seen it, they've got the, the best bowling figures by an Australian and a visiting bowler and the best score by an Australian and visiting player. You probably have seen it because a million photos of it went around on social media. <laughs> However, Safra's now as any time we can work him into the podcast, nine for here on the MCG. Which, sure. Yeah, so the interesting thing at the start of day four is Jimmy Anderson faces the first ball, fends it off to Cameron Bancroft at short leg. Jimmy Anderson then bowls the second ball of the day to Cameron Bancroft. Anderson, I mean, he, he did end up being involved in one of the more interesting passages of play later on that day, but he wasn't the man to get the first breakthrough. That was Chris Wokes. Cameron Bancroft played pretty well, I thought, for 27. He drove really well, hit the ball much better than he did in the first innings where he really struggled through that first interval, but he did chop on, and the way he'll be assessed isn't on how he looked. It'll be the contribution he made. He hasn't made a truckload of runs since his half century in the first Test match of this series, and whether we like it or not, his place will be under discussion leading into the South African tour come March. Yeah, we've all enjoyed his contributions, especially his press conferences and public speaking. <laughs> He's a very entertaining young fella. People would say relatively cheap runs in Brisbane to knock that off. That may not be fair necessarily, but it wasn't under a whole lot of pressure to win that test match. And then, as you say, since hasn't hasn't really made a sizable contribution, even though he's looked pretty handy at times. Yeah, a couple of starts here. I mean, like, they did put on 51, and of course, in the first innings on day one, they put on 122. That's a significant thing being part of a part that is ticking it over. It almost always is a discussion about David Warner when you're talking about the Australian opening partnership. He wasn't the second man to fall, though. That was Usman Kawaja. Jimmy Anderson did pick him up. It was the first time we saw a little bit hint of a reverse swing to the left-handed Kawaja. He nicked off. And at that point, Australia were in trouble. They were still in arrears by 99 runs. Smith joins Warner. They lose another wicket there. And England, are, I would just about say, cruising to victory. But Warner had other ideas. He put together one of the slowest substantial innings that he's ever played. Went at a strike rate of just under 38 as he put together 86 from 227 balls and innings that spanned into the fifth day. You did get the feeling that maybe if they were no wickets down, they might have considered throwing the bat a bit and Mm. putting a a lead in front of England and maybe declaring at lunchtime on day five. But as it was, when those two wickets went down, they went, no, no, shut up shop, time to finish up. And of course, that decision was assisted later on day four when the rain came in and uh, cut short that day. The main talking point out of the day, and I think it was partly due to the rain that fell and ended play a couple of hours early, was whether James Anderson had tampered with the ball. We talked about it in the intro, Jeff. It was a fairly straightforward case, according to the umpire. He was cleaning the ball in front of umpire Damasena. Nothing to see here as far as the officials were concerned. That's exactly what Trevor Bayless said at his media conference on night four. But I guess the problem is is that once the headlines are written, it doesn't matter if there's apologies 
penalties issued later. It's a tough situation for Anderson to be in, and it's regrettable. I think that if you're going to write those sorts of stories online, that's where they started. They weren't coming out of the press box here. They were coming out of you know people following it on television, understandably so. Uh, but the broadcasters, after they've made the initial comment, said there might be questions to answer. There was a tweet that went out from the broadcaster as well where they showed the close-up image, not the, not the footage, but just the image in, in isolation. It leads to these sort of headlines, and obviously when people get frolicking online and obviously lots of internet trolls and those sorts of things who don't like James Anderson, one thing leads to another, and you end up with a story about something that the umpires immediately knocked on the head. Yeah, and it's something where the only thing that gets reported is that someone else has said something about it. So it, <laughs> it gets mentioned on the TV broadcast, and they say, oh, here's this image, maybe that looks like something that needs to be explained. And then someone writes a story going, so-and-so says that this might need to be explained. And then someone writes, Jimmy Anderson has questions to answer, uh, even though he didn't. And you know, as soon as that went about, the England management went into the umpire's room, spoke to them, were told that there was no problem and that there was nothing wrong with the ball, and there really wasn't a story at all. So mm. it, was, it was pretty unfair, and it just left a bad taste in the mouth where you think maybe if England were smashing Australia up in the series, you might understand a bit more the local media deciding to go down that route. But particularly at 3-0 down and a draw looking likely, it seems fairly um, mean-spirited for a Christmas test. Yeah, I think it's more the case that before those sorts of stories end up running and headlines accordingly, that there should be that next step to find out whether there is an investigation. Reminds me of an LBJ quote, which I won't give exactly because it's quite crude. But the point is, is that it's often not about whether there's an investigation or an allegation being followed up. It's asserting that there might be and getting that conversation going and running accordingly. That's what's happened here. I mean, Anderson didn't have a case to answer, therefore he wasn't being investigated. Mm. Then the mud does stick as one of our colleagues in the press box wrote overnight. When you assert this, and there's a headline written, inevitably so. I mean, he will now be known in some quarters as a, as a ball tamperer. And in our game, that is a, a fairly significant charge. And it, in a way, you know, I, I quite feel for... Uh Peter Lawler, the Australian, who wrote a piece basically saying that, saying that uh, you know that England coach Trevor Bayliss raced into the umpire's room at the MCG and found out that there was nothing wrong and no case to answer. But the headline that was put on his piece in the Australian was England's dodgy swing tactics with the photos printed below to make it look like there was something untoward going on. So even the writer of the article is being misrepresented by the way that the newspapers presented it. Yeah, and, and that's the front of the newspaper of the Australian have routinely done that to their stories. In the news section, it's, it's a shame that it's now happening in, in in the sports pages as well. They're, they're, the, they're the links that people will go to. Yeah, so that wrapped up day four and we came into day five with an England win actually being well in consideration, but they definitely couldn't get through the partnership of Smith and Warner, the two of them just batting on and on. Now, Smith had sort of thrown away the chance for twin tons in the match when he got out for 76 in the first innings, even though he went on to his 100 in the second. Warner also threw it away, but more painfully for you in the second innings. In the Kingston Cricket Club at Sabina Park in Jamaica, they rate twin hundreds as the greatest achievement in cricket. They've got little plaques around the wall. like They elevate it to a, to a level that we don't in Australia, and there's this beautiful photo shoot of David Warner out the front of the Kingston Cricket Club in front of this plaque a couple of years ago, and I found the photo this morning. I, was, I couldn't wait to write about it. For 14 runs short of that, for reasons that are best explained by the Australian left-hander, he tried to heave Joe Root into the members' stand, got a big, fat top edge, and, well, that was that, 14 runs of what would have been a, a momentous achievement. There's only two other batsmen in history who've made twin tons three times, Sunil Gavaskar and Ricky Ponting, so Warner's sitting alongside them and uh, could have just gone out on his own four times in a career. Uh, it, I think it's testament to fit 
fitness, maybe more than anything else, because he's able to maintain his focus even when batting in the second innings of a test match. And he's made a lot of hundreds in the second innings, as opposed to Steve Smith, who's got 20 hundreds in the first innings and now three in the second. And some pretty good test matches where he actually completed twin tons before, just to put a full stop on this point. Cape Town in 2014, which is one of the great tests in the modern era. The test in Adelaide against India in 14-15, again, probably the best test on Australian soil in the last decade or so. And even in Brisbane against New Zealand a couple of years ago, that was the first test after Australia had lost the Ashes with a considerable amount of scrutiny on the side at the time. So, look, it, w- it would have been quite something, but in the end, he did fall just before lunch, as did Sean Marsh. Now, this was the point where you'd be right to think it could be game on. Steve Smith striding off the ground. He was the not-out batsman at lunch, but he had the, the bat like an axe in his hand, and that signaled to me he was furious at what had happened in the 20 minutes leading up to the interval. But after the break, that's when Steve Smith kicked into that sort of meditative, trance-like state. We've seen it before in Brisbane in his series, and when he's like that, you just can't remove him. And when you throw into the mix how poor the pitch was, as we discussed earlier, they were on a hiding to nothing England. Yeah, well, there were only a few dozen runs ahead at that point, Australia. And so, as you say, if they'd been rattled through and there'd been, say, 130 to chase in, you know, three more hours on that final afternoon, England would definitely have had a crack at it and could probably have had their first win. But Steve Smith will not be moved when he's in that mode and particularly on a pitch, as he described it himself afterwards, he said it was basically impossible to get anyone out mm. on that wicket. There was there was no pace, there was no bounce, there was no spin, there was no deterioration. And so he was able to just keep coming forward and defending. He didn't worry about scoring the runs. He crawled through to his 100 with a few singles here and there and Mitchell Marsh at the other end played a very solid innings, 166 balls for for 29 not out, which is a real turning point for him, perhaps. Yeah, I thought that was quite noteworthy, the way Mitchell Marsh played. He's a Gen Y cricketer, as I described him in my piece, writing about this innings. He's the kind of guy who hits the ball out of the stadium or, you know, he's very much a 2020 oriented player, white ball player, broadly speaking. That's where he's done his best work for Australia anyway. And he is in the test side because he brings the all-round option, but he's not traditionally there to face 166 balls for, for 29. That's not, as it says, on the Mitchell Marsh tin at the moment anyway. And when he was walking off with Steve Smith after play this evening, he said something to the effect of, I'm really proud of myself. I couldn't have done that 12 months ago. And I think that's quite instructive about the Mitchell Marsh story, about the way his game's evolved since that shoulder reconstruction when he had to leave the India Tour prematurely earlier this year. He's a much improved player. And as we've talked about on the previous episode of this show, he really does round out what's been a quartet of fantastic selections from the Australian administrators when they picked this squad. The real test for him will be whether he can keep that up in South Africa against some pretty hostile seam bowling. But he's got a Sydney test match to come. This one was called off a a good hour and a half early as they realised there was no way there was going to be a result. And uh, a slightly dismal end, but we've got that surprise factor of Sydney where you never know what you're going to get with the wicket up there. Anything could happen in that final test of the series. Yeah, we have that annual tradition of having a second spinner called up to the Australian squad whenever they play at Sydney, regardless of the situation. Ashton Agar's got the gong this time. I thought it would be Steve O'Keefe, which probably signals that Steve O'Keefe's international career is over. But but by the same token, I think what the selectors are doing there is they're saying that when they're using a second spinner, Agar is number two right now because they want to develop him in the limited amount of test matches per year where they will use a second option underneath Nathan Lyon, of course, as the numero uno finger spinner. They want to give Agar as much opportunity as possible so that he's ready to roll in the event that, say, Lyon fell over through injury or something like that. Yeah, it's a complicated story, Steve O'Keefe. He's been involved in some pretty unsavoury incidents off the field that have harmed his chances, and he's been involved in some pretty significant moments for Australia on the field over the last year. Yeah, you'd think that this probably means that his international career has come to a close, as we'll bring close this segment as well. And when we come back, we'll talk about the uh, best and worst of 2017.
This is the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, the Guardians Ashes Cricket Podcast. It is the end of the year, well, the start of the year, as we mentioned before, depending on when you're listening to this. As we've done on the on the pod in the last couple of years, let's do our best and worst of the year that's just been, Jeff. Then we'll actually go to a few things we're looking forward to in 2018. Is this the podcast version of a praise sandwich? Oh, I think it is. Start positive, things to work on in the middle, and uh, positive Cast at forward. the end. That's oh, right. You got beautiful. it. You understand. And your shrapsol. The, the the performance in the World Cup final at Lords, 27,000 people there. A momentous achievement for, to have such a successful tournament, but to punctuate it in quite that fashion, 5 for 11 to take care to 6 for 43 in the final. From the circumstances where England were all but shot, the response of the heaving Lords crowd. I read back through my OBO of that innings uh, the other day when looking at a bit of research around the, 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 uh, the New Year's honour that she's received from the Queen the other day, which is kind of bizarre to think that she's now getting a gong from, from the Queen on, on New Year's Day. And the emotion that was in the room that day in the press box amongst people who may not have spent a lot of time covering as much women's cricket as we have in recent times or may not have taken a particular interest in the women's game, it just kind of, again, it really did punctuate what a special month that was. 27,500 people there, and I've never understood the word spine tingling before. I was like, how does your spine tingle? What, what do you mean? But it did that day. There was the, the, the tingle-ometer was taking a reading from the spinal area, and I think it just highlighted what was an amazing year in women's sport more mm. generally. You know, we saw that in Australia with the AFL women's competition to start the year. Yep. That got things rolling. The Women's World Cup was a huge success in the middle of the year, and it, and it wasn't just the final, but it was the Australia-England game at Bristol with a huge crowd down there, a number of thrillers through that tournament, including that match and including both of the semifinals, sure. really. And for you and I being there and, and watching particularly a couple of the greatest innings ever played in the sport, Shamari Adipatu for Sri Lanka mm. and Harmanpreet Kaur for India, both against Australia, both smashing about 170 <laughs> and really just showing how much the women's game has advanced in the last few years. Yeah, that England-Australia group game as well, that was that was remarkable to see a sold-out international venue uh, and to have that much riding on it. It was just brilliant. We haven't seen that in the women's game before. That Pune test match with Steve O'Keefe, 12 for 70. Steve Smith, 100 in the second innings. I, I doubt I'll see a better innings than what Smith achieved in the second innings there. He came off covered in dirt. He was just a, a man possessed that day after O'Keefe's genius with the ball. 6 for 35 in the first innings. 6 for 35 in the second innings. I think from memory it had been 2,402 days since the previous time Australia had won a test match in India and such an emphatic start to what ended up being a brilliant series. It'll probably be the iconic image of Steve Smith's career once it's done will be that 100 celebration in Pune where mm. he ripped off his helmet. He had the, the headband on holding his hair back because it was so hot and his hair was matted and, and he just, he roared. You know, he's normally quite a composed person, but he knew exactly how much it meant to, to produce that innings and to give Australia a win. They didn't end up winning the series, but they were in it right to the end. And when you look at the embarrassments Australia's had in India the last couple of times they've gone, that was a massive step forward. I think also when you're talking about subcontinental tours, uh, the Bangladesh win against Australia in Dhaka, the first test match of that series in September. Again, I had the great privilege of being there for that, watching my colleagues in the press box from the Bangladesh contingent, how emotional they were about it. The Prime Minister of the country in tears on the boundary line. Um, it was impossible not to get emotionally involved in that. And the way Shakib Al Hassan top scored with 80 odd, took 10 wickets for the match, you know, it symbolised what a great year it's been for Bangladesh cricket. Other great things this year, Virat Kohli had a miserable series against Australia but he had an incredible year outside of that made 500s three double centuries and test cricket was always seen as his slightly weaker format but he's boosted his test average up to nearly 54 in one day as nearly 56 and in t20 internationals nearly 53 so just an insane all-round skill set he's really hot on the heels of smith as far as being 
the best test batsman, let alone taking the limited overs forms in where Coley's well ahead. So 20 test hundreds he's got to 1550s, an amazing conversion ratio. He's played well in Australia before. He's coming out here next summer. And so if he can seal the deal here again, as he did last time, 300s in four tests last time he came... He's already in the ranks of greatness, which is absurd at the age of 29. Yeah, and Smith's 28, and he's got 2,300s in his last 49 test matches. Now, just to conceive those numbers, he's now made 1,300 runs this year at 77. I mean, you know, it's it's almost anything you can do, I can do better amongst those two at the moment. They've really set themselves out as the top two players in world cricket. Nathan Lyon with the ball. Who would have thought a year ago, sitting at this very ground at the MCG, Nathan Lyon was all but sacked from Australian cricket. He was gone. The front page of the newspaper, back page of the newspaper, very well sourced reports by you know everything we were being told at the time he barely held his spot earlier in the summer as well after the Hobart debacle now he's top of the pops no one took more wickets in 2017 he did it in Australia he did it in Bangladesh he did it in India um, what a fantastic comeback as far as my best moments of 2017, the one that sits above them all, the great shining light, is that uh, the MCC has finally given the official tick to the Mancad, which <laughs> should now be... We should stop slandering poor Vinu Mancad, and it should just be a run-out at the non-striker's end, as it should always have been. If you're out, if you ground, you get run out. And it always was. I guess that what the MCC have done have made it a fraction easier to run out the non-striker, with a view to changing the culture. And they've also changed the wording. It is now called running out the non-striker, which I think is a wonderful thing. Let, let's let's shift to the worst of what we saw in 2017, Jeff. We'll start again with the women's game. Meg Lanning not being available for the women's Ashes, such a shame. She was half fit in the World Cup, had to miss a couple of games, needed what amounts to a shoulder reconstruction. Thankfully, she'll be back soon. Uh, the world's best player in the women's game. That was a big blow. That women's Ashes series was magnificent, but just imagine had Lanning been available. It ended up as a real arm wrestle. It was tied eight points to eight on the multi-format system. England bounced back magnificently after falling behind early, and you'd think if there was another game in that series, they probably would have run over the top of the host. So that was a real good news story for England cricket. And maybe it wouldn't have been so close if Lanning were involved, but Elise Perry really stepped up in her place, made that double hundred in the tests, and then Beth Mooney in the T20s with an amazing century, and an 80-odd to make sure that Australia retained the urn. Uh, Speaking of injury... All winter, I was talking about James Pattinson coming back to the Australian side and forming the Fab Four with the three quicks we've seen in operation in his Ashes series. He's now getting his back put back together, or just had it put back together, rather, in New Zealand. That's a real shame. He was dominating county cricket for knots. He'd won Victoria or Sheffield Shield at the end of last summer at the start of his comeback. He looked just right to have the best period of his career, and it didn't last. Another stress fracture to the back. I wonder whether we'll ever see the best of James Pattinson. In going to New Zealand, I'm visualising that Lord of the Rings thing where they make the orcs in the... <laughs> the underground mines in the big tubs of mud and out comes his humanoid figure. So is that is that what's happening to James Pattinson right now? I don't know. They're building him anew. They're making him a new spine. That's always been the issue with James Pattinson. We don't know if we're ever going to see the best of him. We have seen the best in short bursts when his body has allowed it, but so far it's been a career more of promise and potential than delivery. Speaking of New Zealand, that's where Ben Stokes had to play his cricket this summer, not in the Ashes series. Jeff, what a debacle. Deeply disappointing that... The incident involving Ben Stokes happened at all and that it really overshadowed the whole ashes to come. It it was such a huge omission for England. It really derailed their preparation before they even got here. And you do wonder if the slightly insipid displays in the first three test matches might have been different with his influence on the field. It's always going to be one of those questions that hangs over this series, even in 20, 30, 40 years' time when people are looking back. Australia's Ashes campaign was also nearly overshadowed by a a quite scrappy pay dispute between the Players Association and Cricket Australia. Jeff, we both wrote extensively about it at the time. They were out of contract for some weeks, the players. Uh, Let's hope that 
it never comes to that ever again. We won't go into the nitty-gritty. We've both done that already. But needless to say, that was something that at the time occupied far too much energy from players, administrators, and everyone really involved in the game. Yeah, and deeply disappointing that, that really nothing has come of it. There have been no repercussions for anyone involved at Cricket Australia. The people responsible for making that into a fight in the first place rather than having a negotiation. The people who came to it with a really rigid position and weren't prepared to deviate from that. There's been no accountability. There's been no explanation. There's been no public release of any information about it or anything that might be done to improve that in the future. So it's a deeply disappointing episode from start to finish and it hasn't got any less disappointing now that it's a couple of months in the rear vision mirror. To stick with administration for a sec, Australia aren't going to Zimbabwe for test matches next year. Now a lot goes into developing the the bilateral series between the two boards of any two countries but that would have been the first time Australia went to Zimbabwe for tests since 1999. Of course a lot of very good reasons why they haven't gone in the last 15 years or so but this was finally their opportunity to go and play long form cricket. They're not going to do so. That's a watching brief for us. Uh, Australia need to go back to Zimbabwe in the very same way they went to Bangladesh this year for the first time in over a decade. It's important that they go there. Maybe they'll be forced to when the World Test Championship starts. And hopefully it forces them to have Bangladesh tour here to Australia as well. That was supposed to happen next year. It's now not going to happen. The last time Bangladesh visited was 2003. Martin Love was in mm. the Australian test team. Love and War were batting together. Steve Waugh right. completed his set of 150-plus scores against every test nation at the time. But a couple of new test nations coming into consideration with Afghanistan and Ireland, and that's a massive thing to look forward to next year. In- indeed it is. Let's start with that now. Australia go to South Africa in March for 14 test matches. We don't get many four test match series outside of India and England. That's going to be brilliant. Going to South Africa for four test matches, I wouldn't argue they're the best team in the world right now. They've been superseded by India. That's more or less a consensus now. But nevertheless, seeing two countries so well suited to playing fast cricket on bouncy surfaces, that could be an absolutely thrilling contest. And of course, we will be there and we'll be bringing you podcasts from South Africa as well as we're touring around uh, for the first time for both of us in that country. So couldn't be looking forward to that more. And then later in the year, another tournament we'll both be at is the Women's World T20 in the Caribbean. Now, what I'm thrilled about here is they're not just going there. There's going to be a lot of preparation leading up to this. The women's side of England and Australia are both going to India for a tri-series of 2020 cricket. And either side of that, they're playing one day. So I think that might also be a legacy item of the World Cup in 2017 is that we're now not just seeing these kind of bespoke bilateral series or fulfilling their obligations to the ICC calendar. And we're seeing Indian cricket authorities realise that their women's team is is a winner. It's a winner with their public. The popularity and level of interest in India went through the roof as they surged to the final in that World Cup. And all you need to see for proof of that is go onto Mathali Raj's Twitter account now and look at what it was before the World Cup. It's grown from something along the lines of about 4,000 followers to about 400,000 followers. Quite remarkable, that success. Last but not least, Jeff, Pat Cummins. We haven't talked about Pat Cummins yet. He came back to Test Cricket this year after a very long absence, the better part of six years, and he's done everything he can possibly do to give the impression he's about to become a superstar of the game. It's really a watch his space, isn't it? He could be anything. It is, and there's this slight bit of terror that his body might fail, but then no. there's, so much, there's so much hope <laughs> and promise about what he can do. He's, he's basically got the technique of a top six batsman. He can bowl it at 95 miles an hour. He's brilliant in the field. And he's got this sense of composure and calm about him. He's a highly intelligent person. 
he could actually be a fast bowling captain of Australia. Yeah, we remember we asked Jason Gillespie about this on the show a couple of weeks ago. He said, don't put the pressure on a fast bowler being captain. But I just get, I agree, he could be the guy that could confound expectations on that front. It's been very exciting seeing him back in national colours. Can't wait to see more of it in 2018. And Jeff, I think we've just about reached the end of our time this week. It's been lovely talking to you about the Melbourne Test match. All the good and bad things of 2017. We'll do it all again from Sydney next week. And of course, if you haven't done, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so that you get it delivered to you with each new episode. And if you want to leave us a review, that would be very welcome. Until then, this has been The Final Word. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, The Guardian's Ashes Cricket Podcast. Talk to you soon. Farewell to 2017. Definitely not putting that in. Sorry if I ran out to empty, wrote this so you know what I meant here. I had to go.